32, that every mouth may be closed and that all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You may live on the law of I've obeyed my conscience, I've been good, I've, I've worked hard, I've been faithful in my marriage. It's all legalism. It may be the law of the Ten Commandments. It may be the law of our own righteous performance. And God says on the basis of the law, every mouth will be closed. Why? Verse 23, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And all means all. But we are saved by God's gracious initiative in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says to us here, um, just picking it up in, in verse 25, for whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because of the forbearance of God. He passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It is only through faith in Jesus that we will ever stand before God as justified. Abraham chapter 4 being the classic Old Testament example of that, where because of his faith, God reckoned him saved. God reckoned him righteous. Ten times in chapter 4, God reckoned him. It is a reckoning which God makes that we stand before God on. Not the reckoning that we make. God, I reckon myself saved. I reckon myself good enough. But God reckons a man righteous. And it's his reckoning alone that matters. And God reckons righteousness only on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. That being the case, the end of chapter 4, Paul made this incredible statement, which we often don't really see the full impact of it. But he says in the last verse of chapter 4, he... Jesus, who was delivered up, he died, he was crucified because of our transgression. And he was raised up because of our justification. And just as our sin preceded his death, it is our justification which precedes his resurrection. Sin comes before crucifixion. And justification comes before resurrection. The significance of that? Many Christians doubt whether they are justified before God. Many Christians wonder if they have done something that could cause them to lose their salvation. Maybe now they're under the condemnation of God, but once they were saved. And Paul would say, look at the resurrection. The proof of your justification is that Jesus was raised from the dead. He did not rise from the dead in order to justify you. He died to justify you. And the fact that he rose from the dead is proof that all who put their faith in Jesus Christ are saved. And the body of Jesus said, Amen. That any time you should question your salvation, if any time you should question whether, whether it's sufficient what Jesus did, God says, look at the resurrection. The resurrection is proof that it was finished, it is done, and all of those who put their faith in Christ are justified. They stand before God righteous without sin, having peace with God, as chapter 5, verse 1 says. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God does not have a problem with you. And again, the scriptures never say 
that God was reconciled to man, but God says through Paul that man was reconciled to God. Man was put right with God. So God will never look at you and say, what's the problem with you? We look at ourselves and say that. We look at each other and say that. And God says, I have put you right with myself. You are justified before me. You have peace with me. There's no reason to dread God. God is our delight because all things have been put right. The certificate of debt against us, as Paul wrote in Colossians, has been canceled, nailed to the cross, put out of the way. And we have peace with God. Having peace with God, I can look at my, at, at my future and never have to be concerned about what tomorrow holds because I know one day I will get what I do not deserve, the glory of God. I can look at my present circumstances and not have to wonder if God is working through these circumstances to get even with me for what I've done. But rather, Paul says here in Romans 5 that God is working through my circumstances to work in me to bring me into conformity to Christ. And he cannot punish me for sin, which Jesus himself took the punishment for. He cannot, and he does not. And all that being true, I can know that God, if he loved me and demonstrates that love for me and dying for me while I was helpless, ungodly, an enemy, and a, and a, and a sinner, then all the more he demonstrates present tense his love for me today through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And therefore, he loves me. He loves me all the more. And as he says in verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And it's from there that Paul, after talking about the headship of Christ versus the headship of Adam in the last half of chapter 5, he moves into to our identification with Jesus, that we have been baptized with him into his death, into his burial, and into his resurrection. And that, that, that the reasonable response to this 100% identification between Jesus Christ and those who put their faith in him is that they would present themselves to him. Romans 6. No longer present the instruments of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But now, as those who have been crucified with Christ and raised to walk in the newness of life with Him, present your bodies to Him as instruments of righteousness. Present yourselves to Him. We can present ourselves to Jesus on the basis of our theological and positional identification with Christ. Or we can present ourselves over to sin. It is one or the other. It is a conscious decision to put my faith in Christ and present myself to Him daily. Or is an unconscious decision to surrender myself to sin. Present yourself to Him. And in doing so, God brings forth life for Himself. Fruit for God is born through our lives as we present ourselves to God for Him to act in us and through us. He uses an analogy here, remember, of, of, a, of a master and a slave. You can present yourself to the master of Jesus or you can present yourself to the master of the sin nature. He used the analogy of marriage and the two husbands. You can present yourself to the husband of sin or you can present yourself to the husband of Jesus. And the only way to be free from that bondage is to die. <laughs> 
And we have died with Jesus Christ. The husband is not going to die. We have to die. And we saw that Paul's not saying anywhere in these passages that sin within us has ceased to be. That sin has died. It's not the it that dies. It's not the sin nature that dies. But all the way through these chapters, it's we who died. It is the person who dies. Not sin, not the sin nature. And yet, having been saved, and we look at how to live the Christian life now, Paul, remember in chapter 7, says God has given us the law. He has given us the word of God. And he has nothing but good things to say about the law. Remember in chapter 7, verse 11, For sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy. And and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He has not a negative word to say about the law. Because the law is the word of God. So why does he go into this? Because he's trying to drive home the point that you cannot live the Christian life based upon the word of God. Now I'm substituting word for law. But his point is the same. We would all agree I can't live the Christian life on the basis of law. But the law is the word of God. And Paul is saying the word of God is not the dynamic for living the Christian life. The next thing he'll talk about is that new nature that's within me that orients me to God and orients me to his word and that delightfully agrees with the word of God. And he says, if you live by the word of God alone, if you live by the new nature alone, you are destined for defeat and despair. Until you'll be crying out like Paul, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Because God never intended for the dynamic of the Christian life to be either the new nature within that orients me to Jesus, or the Bible, the Word of God, which teaches me of Jesus. I have to have Jesus for living the Christian life. And and again, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that you have life in them and they bear witness of me. Yes, it's the word of God. And yes, it's eternal. And yes, God uses his word to instruct us, to teach us, to sanctify us, even to save us, the scripture says. But God is using the word, the salvation, the sanctification, the instruction. All of it comes from God himself. The dynamic, the means for living this life that God has brought me into in Christ is Himself. And that's Romans chapter 8. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ within us, is the dynamic, the power, the source, the means for living the Christian life. He lives in us, and because He lives in us, and we are in Him, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit, sets us free from the law of sin and death. He fulfills in us all that the Word of God requires of us. Holiness and righteousness, God fulfills in us. He tells us that He bears witness that we are the children of God. He is committed at the end of chapter 8 to working all things together for good, and He ensures that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. And all of that in the context of a fallen world that groans for its day of redemption, we too groaning for our day of redemption, and the Holy Spirit Himself groaning with us in force, with intercedings too deep for words. And we saw from that 
that sin and death were not God's purpose. God did not bring sin and death into this world. Remember Romans chapter 5? Through one man's sin, death entered this world, and death spread to all men because all sinned. God hates it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that it is the final enemy. Death is. God hates death. It is the enemy of God. It is not the desire of God. It is not the plan of God. Yes, He's using it, and He uses all things together, works all things together for good, and uses all things for His glory. But it was not God's intention for death to enter this world, and sin, and all of its consequences. It causes God to groan. Even as you groan, and as creation groans, God Himself groans over what He sees in this world, and watches us experience. And I personally am comforted in that knowledge that we have a God who didn't bring these things to pass and he hates them more than I hate them and there is a day of redemption coming. This is good stuff. It's theology and it's right where we live and it's meant to to elicit praise and and humility and, and giving glory to God in all things. And then you remember those three difficult chapters, 9, 10, and 11, where Paul is like he's anticipating that thought, yeah, God works all things together for good. Yeah, nothing separates us from God. Well, look at Israel. <laughs> They're not having it so good. And they sure look like they've been rejected. And Paul says nothing could be further from the truth. Chapter 9, Israel in the past. Why, Why are they in their present condition? They are the chosen people of God. Chosen, but not saved. And they are not saved, not because of God's choice, but because of their choice. Remember chapter, chapter 9, verse 32. Why then are they not saved? Why have they not found the righteousness of God? Because they, Israel, did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Chapter 10, Israel in the present. Every person, chapter 10 tells us, must hear concerning Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And how shall they hear unless someone tells them? This is the only means that God has given in his word for people to be saved. Most all evangelicals today would agree that salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone where many evangelicals now are parting company is saying that yes, everybody must is saved on the basis of Jesus, but there are those who call themselves evangelical would say that though you do not need to hear concerning Jesus, you will be saved on the merits of Christ without ever heard concerning Christ. You can't, uh, you know, and I, maybe it's true. And again, I said when we went through chapter 10, in my romantic spirit, I want that to be true. I want to think that when people die, they will be given another chance after they die. That they'll taste a little bit of hell and say, if I'd known this is what it was going to be like, I would have put my faith in Christ, and they'll get saved even after they die. The problem is, it's not based upon the Word of God, but it's based upon my romanticism, my emotionalism, what I want to be true, and not on what God has said. If there is any other way for people to be saved, than by knowing the name of Jesus and putting their faith in Jesus. There is nothing in Scripture said about it. And that's the fact of the matter. I may not like it. It may disturb me. But the Scripture says there is no other way to be saved 
than by hearing the name of Jesus, confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. We're going over this very point recently, just this week, with our second year students. I was in a class I have with them, and I'm having them read the second of two books on this subject of what does it take to be saved. It's a book called The Population of Heaven by Ramesh Richard. Very, very difficult book to read. I've told them it's the hardest book they probably ever read in their lives because he's written it on an 11th grade level. You know, 11th grade level. New American Standard is one of the hardest Bibles to read with the King James. New American Standard and King James Bibles were written on like a 7th and 8th grade level. The Daily Newspaper is written on like a 3rd or 4th grade level. And so most of what we read is not even high school level. And this guy has written an 11th grade book. And it's really hard to understand. But in just going through the book, and we were reviewing it the other day in class, he made just a very side minor point. And that is the whole theme of his book is you must hear concerning Jesus to be saved. That the, the content of our faith has to be the person of Jesus Christ. And then just a very minor aside, he said, when it comes to deliverance from demonic activity, you must use the name of Jesus. So if the name of Jesus is essential for deliverance, why would we say it is not essential for salvation? And I just thought, that's a good point. What person would want to go in the spiritual battle of a person who is occupied by demons and try to get those demons to come out of his life by any way other than the name of Jesus Christ? And even those that would deny that you need to hear about Jesus would never be so foolhardy as to deal with demons on the name of Buddha or the name of just a generic God, but they would say, in the name of Jesus... Because it is Jesus' name that the demons respond to. Not Charlie's name, not your name, not, not even just saying God, but in the name of Jesus. Remember, Jesus says that there's going to be those in the last days who come to him and say, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles in your name. And Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. But they came out, not because of the significance of the person doing the exorcism, but because of the significance of the name of Jesus. If his name is essential for deliverance, which is greater, deliverance or salvation? Salvation is greater. If his name is essential for deliverance, his name is essential for salvation. Why then in this present time, have they just not heard? Have Israel not heard concerning Jesus? And Paul argues they have heard. They are not saved because of God's choice, chapter 9. They are not saved because of ignorance, but rather they are not saved, he says in chapter 10, verse 21, because of their disobedience and obstinacy. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. He wanted them saved. They are not saved because of, uh, because of God's choice, not saved because of, of their ignorance, but because of their willfulness, their stubbornness, their obstinacy. And then chapter 11, one more chapter about Israel, and it concerns the future. Maybe we should come to this position then that Israel has been rejected. God has set them aside. He has now raised up a new channel of redemption, and he has, that being the church, and the church has now become the spiritual Israel. The problem with that is God has not rejected Israel. 
The church is never called Israel. We as believers are called the sons of Abraham. We are never called Israel. God had a plan for Israel. God has a plan for Israel. And there will be the day when Israel will yet be saved. Paul argues and says just the fact that Jews are being saved today is proof that God has not rejected Israel or the Jewish people. And there will come the day when Israel as a nation will be saved. He says that in verse 26 of chapter 11, And thus all Israel, all Israel, not just the remnant, will be saved. And then his, his primary point of this chapter, verse 28, and down into verse 29, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, the Jews, are the enemies, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Why? Because God's gifts and God's calling are irrevocable. And God has gifted Israel. God has called Israel. And those gifts and those callings upon the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are irrevocable. God's purpose concerning Israel will be accomplished. And that purpose is their salvation. In the meantime, all we Gentiles, we have been shut up. Because we know those gifts and calling weren't to us, they were to Israel. We have no claim upon all the promises that were given to Israel, they were for Israel. We were the people who were outside, deemed hopeless and separated from God. And God in His mercy came to a people sitting in darkness and He has offered Jesus to us. We found Him when we weren't even searching for Him because God came to us in the person of Jesus and offering Himself to us. And as far as Israel, they too, have been silenced, shut up. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. And Paul looks at this and he goes, Folks, we have reason to stand humbled and awed. God is an awesome God. He is truly remarkable in what he is doing and has been doing for all the centuries that we've been here, the millennia that we've been on this planet, God has been accomplishing his will. Never intended for death to come into this world. Hates sin and death more than we do. And yet God is using that very hostility and rebellion which caused sin and death to come into this world. God is using it to silence us and bring us to that place of, of humble adoration and praise of him. We have no righteous standing other than that which he bestows upon us through faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. We'll never exhaust the knowledge of God. Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 13, when we enter into glory, we will be fully known and we will know fully. We will know fully even as we have been fully known. He doesn't mean that we will know everything there is to know about God. Because God is infinite. He always will be. And we will always be finite. We will spend all of eternity discovering more and more about our infinite, omnipotent God. To His glory. Every day we'll wake up to new marvels 
concerning God and who he is. There is no one greater. No one even comes a close second. The depth of his riches, with the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? God is no one's pupil. God is no one's student. He is the teacher. He is the instructor. Two Old Testament passages. Remember one, Habakkuk or Habakkuk. God, how long will you allow this the sin of our nation to continue? When, won't, when will you do something about it? And God says, I'm sending the Chaldeans. And now Habakkuk says, no way, God. You're a holy and righteous God. You can't use evil to accomplish good. And God says, really? You ain't seen nothing yet. I am a holy and righteous God. And I can use all things together for my glory and for the good that I'm going to accomplish. That includes Satan. That includes sin. That includes Chaldeans. That there is no person, no individual, including Satan himself, that I cannot use to achieve my purposes. Because I am the sovereign God. And there is nobody, as bent as he may be on his own evil, who is going to thwart what I am going to accomplish on this earth. Nobody. And so before God finish, even, even starts that answer, Habakkuk says, I'm just going to wait until God's finished talking, and then I'm going to respond. And by the time God's finished talking, the last word is, God is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent. In chapter 3, Habakkuk is simply praising. He's giving adoration and praise to God. No more, what do you think you're doing, God? God is in his temple. Let all the earth be silent. I may not understand his ways. I may not agree with his ways. But he is God. Who do I think I am? With Job, no more righteous man on the face of the earth. Man. Loses everything. All of his children. All of his wealth. And he's afflicted with boils from head to toe. He has other relatives. They don't even come to visit him. Not until the very end. Brothers, sisters, aunts and uncles, cousins, nephews, never show up. Only his wife. And she says, curse God and die. And all throughout those chapters he's saying, I have been wronged by God. If I could have a day in court with God, I would present my case and I would prove my righteousness. And by the end of the book, he's saying, Oh God, I lay my hand over my mouth in silence. I have uttered that which I do not know. God shut him up. He was the most righteous man on earth. And he was not suffering because of his sin. And I don't know when God told him about Satan. And that it was because of Satan's bait that God had, had, had said, try, try my servant Job. He suffered in ignorance. But he began to sin in his suffering. We know that. 
But the final part of it is just simply, I have uttered that which I do not know. And now I cover my mouth with my hand. I sit in silence. If there's one thing God wants to do before all mankind, is just to say, God, not that I know nothing, because God wants us to know Him, but God, I have no ground for objection. You are God. You are God. And your ways are unsearchable. Your judgments are unsearchable. Your ways are unfathomable. God, I sit in silence. God has no instructor. And God has no creditor. Verse 35. Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? God is no man's debtor. No one. There have been different times, you know, and even Job was a good example of this again. All of his children taken away, all of his wealth taken away. And he said, God gives and God takes away. They weren't mine. They were gifts from God. And God can take away. We can offer our lives to God and, and go to places that we, there's no hope of coming back. As missionaries used to do years ago, they would get on that boat and never see their families again. And yet they didn't do it out of a sense of sacrifice, but of privilege, privilege. Because God is no man's debtor. There is nothing that we have, nothing that we can give away, except what we have received from the gracious hand of God. And we won't outgive Him. We simply won't. And I've seen this through, you know, throughout my short life. Not so much short in years anymore, just short in stature. I've never seen, as, as David said in the Psalms, I have never seen that God's people go begging. That there may be areas where we go, God, we're, we're, we're destitute and we're bankrupt. But there are other areas where God enriches beyond what we can hardly even appreciate. And many times it's others who see it and appreciate it. We don't oftentimes even see the own riches that God's bringing into our lives. He is no man's debtor. And if it's not now, the day will come. And the day will come, as the scripture tells us. We will stand before God, receiving an exceeding weight of glory that goes far beyond any suffering that any have endured at this present time. He will not be a man's debtor. It's not going to happen. And then finally, from Him, to Him, through Him, are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Those three little prepositions, from, through, and to, say everything. And if you had one verse in the Bible to memorize, this would be it. It tells us everything is right here. Salvation, life, the ability to get up in the morning and tie your shoes. Everything is from God. Everything. He's not saying sin and evil and death 
Obviously, he's already addressed that in Romans. But all that is good, every ability, every sane thought, all of it comes from God. And at different times, I've had an opportunity to encourage people and and to speak from this verse. And, And barring from others, I've said, you will never be able to live for God. Never. Until you've learned what it means to live from God. Because our four doesn't last very long in a fallen world. It all, I mean, my four goes out maybe faster than yours does. But I don't have a whole lot of four. And I, ha- and I still do. In the desperation of life circumstances and in the in incredible awareness of my own inadequacy and insufficiency, know that if the from is from me, then I might as well just stay in bed because I don't have any from. The from is Jesus. The from is God. Absolutely every iota. No person will ever be able to take any credit for anything when we stand before God. He is alone the creator. And he created out of nothing. You and me. Everything is from him. And not only is he the source of all things, he is the means Everything is through him. He didn't just create this world out of nothing and as the deist would say, just wound up the clock and stepped away and just let it go on its own. He is sustaining it. He is keeping it, maintaining it, holding it together. He is the agency today. He wants me to know this. This is what God's after in my life, to know that he is the source of all. And that I cannot live this life in my own strength. That I, just as I must live from Him, that He doesn't just bestow life on me, but I, but I receive that life because it comes from Him. And now that I've received that life, as Romans 8 says, He must live that life through me. I can't just live for Him now that He has given me His life. I can't live from him, for Him to get that life. I must receive it because it comes from Him. I can't live for Him now that I've received the life. He must be the agency. I have to allow Him to live through me. That I might live to Him or for Him because He is the goal. And we would say, well, that's a nice, nice verse for Christians, Charlie. And God wants Christians to come to know that He is... He is that from him, through him, and to him are all things. This is not a verse for Christians. Again, this is theology. Theology 101. This is true for all creation, for all eternity. This is a statement concerning God. And it's just as much true of the unbeliever as it is of the Christian. Every man and woman and boy and girl, it is absolutely true of them. Their life has to come from God. Their means is God himself. And the end is God. Remember Philippians chapter 2. In the end, even all those who never recognize Jesus as Lord, all, the end is Jesus. The goal is Christ. And every single person who refused to acknowledge him while on earth, they will do so. Because it is the goal. It is the fact. It is theology.
God is the goal. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. To him be the glory and him alone, him alone.